this this past Sunday, Tim did a, a marvelous job, masterful job of preaching through Acts chapter 12. Oh, he is here. Good. I was hoping I'd get credit for saying it in front of him. And one of the interesting things that he did is he allowed us to enjoy some tension. And there's always tension when we contemplate God and his will. And the tension that really resulted was we saw two stalwarts among disciples, James and Peter, the inner circle, and both of them are in prison. Yet, at the end of the day, after a church praying earnestly for James to be delivered, for Peter to be delivered, at the end of the day, James is executed and Peter is hand-delivered step-by-step by the hand of an angel of God. And we're left to scratch our heads and say, as Tim so aptly put it, what about James? And what about their prayers? And what about our prayers? And what does that say about the sovereign will of God? And do we believe that God was sovereign over every one of these events? As the Bible says, not a hair of your head or not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of the will of God. Jesus himself taught those very same Peter and uh, James, those very things there. Let's look again at the passage and we'll wrestle a little bit here with that concept before we um, break into our groups. Um, Back in Acts 12, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That implies that his head was chopped off. That's, that's how that would have happened. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover, or after the Passover associated with the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, uh, I'm sorry, after the the, um, uh, Sabbath associated with it. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was bringing him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, came to the iron gate leading to the city, opened for them by itself. They went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and says, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches, and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And so he's returned in great joy, great victory, almost delirium, not knowing what to make of it, as he comes back to the disciples. But it leaves us 
with some difficult questions. And those difficult questions really do surround the most difficult questions that we always have to wrestle with and that all have wrestled with for all of all time. And that is, if God is sovereign over all human events and God is good, why does he allow evil like the execution of James to occur? Or why does he allow evil like the tsunami of the Indian Ocean that killed a quarter million? Why does he allow natural evil? Why does he allow intentional evil? Why is that open as part of his will if he is both a benevolent God and an omnipotent God? If those things go together, how do we wrestle with that very idea? And as we take a look at this passage, we see a sovereign God who is sovereign over all human affairs. The title of my lesson today is Sovereign Over Suffering and Sovereign Under Suffering. Uh, that God is sovereign over all human affairs. We know that. There are more biblical passages that lay that out than we could begin to even be able to read in, in one sitting. But over and over again, James, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus, Paul, Peter, the psalmists, Moses, one after another, all affirm, as do almost every prophet, that God is sovereign over all human events and that nothing happens outside of his sight. Psalm 139 actually says that all the chapters in your book are written before you've lived any one of them and that God does constrain you from before and behind in, in your walk in life. And, and if, if all of this is already known by God, then why did he allow Bridget to die last week? Why did he allow us to uh, see, see suffering among couples that are having a difficulty being able to uh, have a baby? Why does it, right? I mean, think of the, the, the most difficult of all questions that we have. We have a sovereign God who allows all of that. And it is quite, quite, quite a difficult uh, situation. And when you think of either Sheila's death or Bridget's death, the, the, the difficulty of that um, is actually much more difficult for Westerners because we're not, we're not just so surprised that God allows suffering. We're actually more surprised that any suffering is experienced in our lives. It just simply floors us. And we have what is called a frame of reference that is more immediate than any people has ever had in the history of mankind. The way that we make sense of things is always in an immediate frame of reference rather than regarding any sort of transcendent purposes or longer term uh, cause and effect that, that would, uh, would be rendered by it. And, and as such, we're quite handicapped as a, as a civilization right now, as a culture, to be able to try to wrestle with the idea of suffering. And we've got to appreciate that and realize that of ourselves. If we went to other places on earth right now, they would not have the same appalling idea that any suffering could occur in our lives. They would just recognize it as, as something that is part of life. Now, it is part of life, but, 
But I think it's still fair enough to say, but why? Why is that part of life? Well, there is a, a simple answer to that, because we have a God who wants to have a real relationship of love with us. This is an overriding reason for everything that happens in this chapter. We have a God who wants a real loving relationship with you. In order for that to be the case, guess what he had to give you? Free will. Guess what he had to give Adam? Eve. Free will. Not some sort of a fail-safe switch inside of that free will. Free will. Not a free will that is so overridden by coercion by him, but free will. Otherwise, how will it ever be a reciprocal, loving relationship? And to appreciate that our God loves us dearly, deeply, and wants this relationship with us. And so, as he created Adam and Eve, as all of this began, he allowed the magnificent but yet frightening open door of free will and all the potentialities that could occur because of that. But did not want to coerce and did not want to control, but to have it a real relationship. And whether, whether God knew ahead of time or not, it's a big debate theologically, whether Adam would fall. Uh, did he limit his knowledge purposefully to be able to enjoy the relationship? He, he could have done that. Nobody really knows the answers to these questions, by the way. But nonetheless, we chose to reject him. We chose to reject him, and in doing so, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the consequences of rejection, the consequences of sin, is that the world is now a fallen world. It is now a world where it is difficult to, to, to scrap out the living from the land. It is a world that is difficult for childbirth. It is a world that now is subject to disease, decay, and even death. None of those things existed before man decided to put into place sin, rebellion, cosmic rebellion against God, that would include all of those consequences that, that come from them. Uh, and, and by God allowing those consequences to come, then the, the other difficulty is, well, what if every time we prayed for good, he just does good? Right? What if every time we prayed for James to live, then James lives? But if we fail to pray, well, then he rolls the dice, and then James either lives or dies. Like, why, why doesn't he do it that way? Because if God became a cosmic genie, if God became a cosmic vending machine, or if God made it so much the case that every single time you sinned, you were severely beat down, and every time you lived out of virtue, you were astoundingly benefited, well then, you would no longer do right intrinsically. You would never do right for the sake of righteousness. You would only do right because you're like a rat in a maze, and you know if you paw at the right button, good things will come your way instead of the, the, the bad things. And so that's the difficulty, is there's a randomness to our world. It's why Jesus says, 
The rain falls on both the righteous and the wicked. The sun shines on both the righteous and the wicked. Why does God allow that kind of what seems to be a, a, a random experience that could come to, to both righteous and wicked because he doesn't want you to be coerced. And cosmic conditioning is no different than taking away your free will. Cosmic conditioning of, hey, you know what? If you pay better attention, you're probably going to make 10% more income this year. Uh, you know, if, if, if you're not paying attention to this sermon right now, you'll probably get a flat tire on your way home, right? Again, but, but, but if it went that way, right? And that's exactly what I'm talking about. It, 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 do right, blessings, do wrong. Right? But, but if it went that way, well then, there'd be a lot of flat tires. <laughs> I, I mean, there, you would not, <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> There'd be no flat tires. We're all engaged. It's the word of God. We love this. No, but, but if it went that way, you would, you would never dive into a communal enjoyment of the word of God for its own sake. You would only do it to avoid the flat tire or to get the 10% income boost. Right? I mean, we've got, we've got to recognize why there's this seemingly randomness, why there are still hurricanes that, that make their way through Florida. Why there are still tornadoes? Through, why, why do all of these things still occur? Despite the fact that we don't appreciate the greater common good and all that needs to happen in order to have an ecosystem to support life, etc. Yes, there's a lot that goes into all of that. But in the meantime, there, there also seems to be suffering that the people endure that seemingly don't have any association to whether they've done right or done wrong. And again, it goes back to why because God wants us to love him in a real relationship. Not, I'll give you a cookie if you love me. Or I'll, 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 I'll keep the poison away if you, if you love me. Right? Again, we, we've got to recognize that that is all part of the sovereignty of God. And in his sovereignty, which we don't understand completely, it was his sovereign will that James... James's death was rather significant to his plan for his message. James's death was important even before the church was to launch onto foreign soil. And Peter's deliverance was necessary for things to keep going the way that they were. And, and, and it, we're, again, we're not able to appreciate the depth of, of the way that he does allow these things and intercedes at times for, for any of these things, but just to recognize that he has a, a greater plan. And by the way, uh, Clayton mentioned this uh, in one of our discussions on this passage, what's really like the worst thing at the end of the day for James? Paradise. Which leads me to my second point. God, in his sovereignty has always wanted a restoration of what he originally intended. Right? His original intention in love was to have this community of volitional love with us. Not coercive love, but real sovereign. You are a, 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 a sovereign agent of, of morality yourselves. You, you have the freedom of will to, to make these choices. He wants to restore that, ultimately to Eden again. It's his great desire. And so even when 
Eden fell. Even when Adam fell, Acts 2 says God already had plan B ready to go. Whether he knew it would happen or not, or whether he just maybe wanted to make sure that even in my free will plan, there's obviously a lot that can go down with that, that even in that free will plan, that if it should go the wrong way, well, I'm ready to do something outlandish in order to get it back to Eden again. And what was that? The death of his son. The plan has always been the death of his son. And for that death of his son to be a message that spreads, spreads through James, spreads through Peter, spreads through the rest. And we have not just a suffering, a a, a sovereign God over suffering, but we have a sovereign God under suffering. And that's a really big deal. If we have a God who suffers for us, well then, that's a God we can trust. The very thing that he wants from us as he brings us into this deliverance of Eden again is to trust in him. He's not merely a a, a sovereign manipulating events for some greatest common good. He's a sovereign that decides that he is going to immerse himself into humanity. And through Jesus' suffering, he learned humanity. And interestingly, now, through our suffering, we learn Christianity. Suffering has great and important purposes, indeed. But the backdrop of this entire event occurs when? When, 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 when does this occur? During what feast? What's, what's that also known as? Sure. This is the only Easter celebration in the entire Bible. This is an Easter service. Praying for the release of Peter is an Easter, it's the only Easter service that we see in the Bible. The backdrop of this entire story is the death, burial, and resurrection during Passover, during Easter, of Jesus. At the same time that there's anguish and prayers and celebration and grieving, is the same time that there was anguish and prayers and celebration and grieving. Only not in that order. For Christ. It's the 10-year anniversary, perhaps, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that is, is actually being played out right here. This is really an important idea because this is unlike any other philosophy, religion, where sovereignty stays aloof, transcendent from the human condition. To the Stoics, they had the idea of fate and of, of, of gods that, that could control the directions of their lives. Islam has the idea of kismet, of also a kind of a fatalistic idea that goes with it. Only Christianity embraces such a depth of free will, sovereignty, and suffering of our God the way that, that we, we get to recognize in this passage. This is a massive idea. And, it, and it's the only 
only system of thought that allows our suffering to have significance. Our suffering has significance because our suffering, when we suffer as a Christian, which Peter is the one who writes that, doesn't he? The man who is praying to the Lord earnestly with everyone else as he is suffering and anticipating his execution, he is the one that's able to come out and, uh, and be able to say so clearly why it is that, that suffering is so very important to us. Because, as he says in 1 Peter 4.13, you share in Christ's sufferings when you're going through fiery trials, when you're going through the furnace. This furnace is meant to bring about your proven worth. It is not an empty exercise of futility for some sort of a bored God to see you play the game under some sort of travail or punishment or, or suffering. No, he says instead that our suffering we can make sense of because Jesus has not just gone through any furnace. He's gone through the ultimate furnace for us. So that whatever furnaces of suffering that we go through, we can recognize that he goes through it with us. To the degree that you appreciate that he took your ultimate furnace for you, know that he joins you in these smaller furnaces that are the everyday experiences in a fallen world. And especially so in a fallen world where Christianity is persecuted. Every one of those furnaces, Peter says, is a testing to help you to be all the more refined like fire. And, and as, that, as that fire casts off the dross and leaves only the pure gold of your faith. And it's a, it's a beautiful process where we begin to understand and appreciate Jesus all the more. But now, Jesus, in his suffering, has the greatest moment of anxiety where there's this orchestration of every pain that could be possible. His separation from God being deluged by all of our defiling sin, mocking by the establishment all about him, as well as unspeakable physical pain with his median nerves having been severed, his, his plantar nerves, his occipital and trigeminal nerves, all flaring in an awful concert, all at the same time. And in the moment of all of that happening, he screams out a question, not too different from Tim's question, but his question was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what the answer is? For me. You, you can say it just the same. For you. My God, my God, why has he forsaken me? Because Jesus is doing it for you. Because he knows that it's only going to be a compelling, not a coercive, a compelling act of love that restores Eden, that restores the right relationship, that restores the love community that has always been God's end game. For Christ's love compels us 
because we are convinced that he died for all, and therefore those of us who live no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised again. But it's not just that Jesus suffered then for us, but we see after the persecution of Stephen, the first martyr, James is the second, but after the persecution of the first martyr, we have a very interesting statement the next time that Jesus comes on the scene. And it should be very encouraging for us, no matter what it is that we go through, and that Jesus says to Paul, or Saul at the moment, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul was killing the church. Saul was killing the Christians. Saul gave approval to the death of Stephen. But what's the question from Jesus? You're doing this to me. I am in absolute league with my brothers and my sisters. So again, when you go through these furnaces, know that the answer of why you're going through it is somehow understood by the fact that you're not going through it alone. Jesus is the one who is grieving the very fact of this persecution, and it is his persecution as well. We are not alone in any one of these events. James was not alone. Peter was not alone. The end result is different, and that is left to a sovereign God, but it was not alone. And one last bit to put in this. Now, all of those deliverances by the Lord are for Christian persecution. But what about just everyday disease and death? How do we, how, you know, for example, Bridget, who, who just died, um, she didn't die for being a Christian, right? She, she had illness. Uh, likewise, Sheila didn't die for being a Christian. Sheila had contracted a, a, a terrible illness. But Sheila and Bridget died because of illness. It's, it's not as clear sometimes there, except if you look at Jesus when he encounters death and you realize the way that he felt about it. In John 11, right after it says that Jesus wept for Lazarus, something even more profound is said when he comes up to the tomb, knowing that in about four sentences, he's about to say, come on up, you're going to be resuscitated, you're not dead anymore, Lazarus. Lazarus, wake up, come out. Right? That's about to happen in moments. But it says that Jesus was deeply moved. Or, depending on your translation, Jesus was filled with compassion. Or, depending on your translation, Jesus was deeply indignant at the scene. The, the, the word splagnazo is the idea of fury. Jesus, seeing this scene, Martha, Mary, his friends, his other friend, Lazarus, seeing Lazarus dead, who's going to be alive in just a moment, nonetheless, Jesus encountered the scene with fury. Seeing that. Why? Why fury? You know why I think? That he's so furious, so indignant, and yet so compassionate for God's creation that Satan was able to put one over and gain this victory. Furious that Satan has brought mankind through this travail, through this history, brought death 
into play by his insidious temptation that helped to bring about the stumbling of man. Furious that he was able to gain that victory. Why? Because every death of any human to Jesus is a recognition of the very thing that he hates. He, he, again, God in Christ so wants a loving depth of relationship with us to see us subjected to death and decay and illness is a source of such indignation, such fury that he unleashes. And how does he unleash that fury? By going right from there in Bethany, over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and he does it all in the next chapter. It goes right into the teeth of Jerusalem. Why? So that he can go to that cross. So that he can go to that cross and ultimately put Satan to shame. Fueled by that fury, he marches into the teeth of the enemy. And he allows Satan to think that in his arrogance, that he could gain a victory even over the Son of God. And so, Satan jumps right in and thinks that, yes, let's put the Son of God to death. He will be under my dominion. It is the dominion of Satan. Through his temptation, he introduced death. It is his dominion of death. And in his arrogance to think that he could swallow up in death Righteousness, perfect love, absolute obedience. That was Satan's great gambit that went awry. Why? Because death was never designed to have any hold over righteousness, holiness, obedience, or love. Death only had leverage where there was sin. And now, Satan, in his folly, in his arrogance, thinks that he's going to gain a victory over the Son of Man with no sin, with only pure love, with only abounding righteousness. And, and the beauty of it is, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? The reason that's able to be said is because when Christ was brought into the dominion of death, with perfect love, perfect obedience, and sinlessness, as we've mentioned before, he exploded death. Death itself was bankrupt and shattered, shattered by trying to take in something that it had no right to ever take in, to take in something more powerful than it had dominion over. And as a result, death was abolished. And so likewise, all that enter into death, Galatians 3.27 says, all who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. James entered into death clothed with Christ. And so when James entered into death clothed with Christ, clothed with sinlessness, love, obedience, righteousness, when James entered into death, he exploded out of death. As Johnny Cash so poignantly wrote, 
ain't no grave going to keep my body down. And for anyone who has been baptized into Christ and has been clothed with Christ, that is the reality for you as well. But there's an end game here that, that, that is now kind of about to be spread throughout all the world. And that is what God always wanted from the very beginning, for paradise to be restored. And what Jesus did by abolishing death, by making perfect righteousness available to all, setting free all that would trust in him, that can trust in him because he is a suffering and a sovereign God, by, by doing all of this, we're, we're able to then to have hope for the next chapter, the next chapter when all of this is made new, when, when all of this is abolished, when with clear eyes, only those, not through coercion, but through compelling, beautiful act of love, all participate fully in the age to come, well then, then God's sovereign plan finally comes to its culmination. It's what we live for. If we only have hope in life for this current age, we're to be pitied more than all men. What we live for is something so beyond our imagination, but yet so beautifully wonderful, and it is really coming our way. James is there. He got there before us. Peter got there just a little while later. He wrote a really good book on suffering, First Peter, before he did, before he ended up there as well. We'll all end up there unless Christ returns first and makes all things new. But we have a God that, yes, we, we grapple with the difficulty because he is sovereign, but we don't have to shake our fist at him in our unanswered questions because we have a God that's not just sovereign, but a God who suffered and makes everything clear. He did all of this out of love. Why sovereign? Why free will? Why allow all these things? Because he wants a real loving relationship with him. Why suffer? Why go through? Because he wants a real loving relationship with us. So amen. Let's go ahead and break to our groups. Thanks.